today we are concluding the series that we've been doing that I've been sharing with John Bodley on the book of Colossians. And if you missed any of those talks, if you'd like to, you can catch them on uh, the website. The theme we've been coming back to again and again is the way in is the way on. What we've been saying is that the best way to continue in this journey of faith is the same way that we got into it. And Colossians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul, uh, church planter and missionary from the first century. And he wrote this to the relatively new church in the town of Colossae. And in it he says this, Colossians 2, verse 6. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. He's saying, however you got into this journey, continue it in the same way. Now, Paul, some of you won't know about Paul, but he had a particularly dramatic entry, finding his way in. And we know about this story because it's recorded in another of the New Testament books, the book of Acts. And Paul, who was initially called Saul, was a very devout Jewish man. He was a model Jew, and he was someone who knew all the right answers. He studied extensively. He described himself as being extremely zealous. And he was proud of his heritage as a Jew and of meeting all the criteria that he thought mattered to God. But he actively went about trying to stamp out this sect that was arising within Judaism, this sect following this Nazarene, this man from Nazareth, Jesus. And so he did everything he possibly could to destroy the early church. Spent his time hunting down and dragging into prison Christians. He was an accomplice to murder of one of them, Stephen. He looked on with approval as he held the coats for those who were stoning this early Christian to death. And on his way to another city to root out more Christians and drag them off into prison, he was interrupted by a light so bright that it knocked him over. And in that light, he heard the voice of Jesus himself saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? When Saul got to his feet, tried to open his eyes, he found that he couldn't see. He was blinded. And the Lord, Lord then spoke to one of the early Christians called Ananias. And he said to him, go and I want you to go to this guy's house where he's staying. His name's Saul. I want you to go and see him and pray for him that he might receive his sight. Now, this is one of those moments when you have to apply a bit of empathy to really get into what the Bible's saying, because when Ananias is told by the Lord to go and meet with this Christian hunter, this person, accomplice to murder, who wants to catch any Christian he can, his response, as is recorded in the Bible, is this, Lord, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. A fairly controlled response. But I suspect what Ananias really meant was Saul, v. Saul, the most ruthless and committed pursuer and murderer of Christians. With all due respect, Lord, I think you must be joking. But incredibly, Ananias steps into the dragon's den and he goes and prays for Saul. And he says this, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me 
so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. As he prayed for him, immediately he was able to see. And that experience of meeting the risen Lord Jesus Christ defined Paul's life. It was his way in, and he never forgot it. Jesus revealed himself in a personal encounter that completely changed the path that Paul's life was on. Jesus interrupted him. Jesus sought him out, found him, and suddenly Paul finds himself in a relationship with Jesus. Ananias greeting him by saying, brother. Paul hadn't done a thing to deserve it, rather the exact opposite. Paul called himself the chief of sinners. He knew that he'd done some awful things in his past, but Paul found himself included in God's community, in God's family, now a brother, and was put on a whole new directory. This relationship was a pure gift given by God, a gift to be received, not something to be earned, not something, something to be worked for. It was a relationship that eclipsed all the things that Paul had previously valued so highly. And Paul began to realize from that moment on just what he'd been given through what, <clears throat> through what he called the gift of God's grace. I think I will have a drink. And Paul never got past this life-changing experience. Twenty years after it happened, he was still writing about it in his letters to the churches. He was a man changed by grace. Grace, God giving what was totally undeserved, became his theme tune. You can't read Paul's letters, many of which are contained in the New Testament in the Bible, without reading that word grace. And he uses that word or a derivative of it, no less than 144 times in his letters. He uses it in every single letter by no later than the fifth verse. It's a word that was frequently on his lips because he never got over his own grace experience. Jesus once said that those who have been forgiven much love much. You may be able to think of someone you know who shares this quality, someone who has been changed by grace, someone who once lived a life so filled with darkness that when they encountered Jesus, when they found forgiveness, when they found new life, they began to live every day with an irrepressible sense of joy. When I was about 13, I read possibly the first book I ever read, Run Baby Run. Some of you may have read it, it was written by Nicky Cruz who encountered Jesus through a guy called David Wilkerson, who led a number of New York gang members to Jesus in the 1950s. And if you've never heard of Nicky Cruz, I really would encourage you just to Google it on, on YouTube, watch his testimony, because he tells all about what happened. He grew up in an extremely abusive, brutally violent home. His mother was a Satan worshiper. And he described himself as a child and growing up through his teens as being like an animal. He quickly became the leader of one of New York's most feared gangs and only felt good when he was inflicting pain on others, whether with a knife or a gun or a bat or something else. And David Wilkerson just loved him, despite Nicky's threats to kill him if he didn't stop talking about Jesus. And uh, he said, David Wilkerson said to him when he was threatened with a knife, he said, cut me into a thousand pieces and every piece will still love you. 
And Nikki Cruz found that love so compelling and the offer of forgiveness from his entire past so shocking that he committed his life to Jesus. And here's a picture of him with David Wilkerson, the skinny preacher, as he described him, swapping one of his many weapons, a baseball bat, for a Bible. Nikki's life dramatically changed, and he's devoted the decades since then to working with young men from similar backgrounds. He is now 77, and just a few weeks ago, he spoke at uh, a friend of ours church, Holy Trinity Brompton, and dozens of people flocked up to give their lives to Jesus. He's still going, he's still passionate, and can never forget that moment that turned his life around. And through church history, Jesus has used these kind of people to spur their brothers and sisters in the church on. And Paul is perhaps the first and greatest example of this, a man who lived a life that was so opposed to Jesus, but who encountered him personally and went on to live a life that could not have been more dedicated, more passionate, and to you and me, more inspiring. Before Paul's dramatic encounter with Jesus, he had worked all his life at earning God's favor according to the strictest Jewish traditions. But now he'd come out of that and had experienced free and unmerited grace and right standing before God that didn't just depend on his own effort. But Paul passionately believed that this was the only way in and the only way to continue, that Jesus is enough. And it became his message to those early churches that he planted. Jesus is enough for the way in, and he is enough for the way on. The title of this talk is Jesus is Enough. Now, I realize that for many of us who've been following Jesus for a while, those words don't necessarily carry much fresh impact. Jesus is enough. We know that, don't we? But today, I just want to ask, do we really? Are we captivated by this incredible truth, and are we living in the reality of it? Such a simple phrase, Jesus is enough, but I wonder if we really embraced it, if we really understood how profound it is and accepted it, how much it would actually affect every area of our life, our life goals, our dreams, our approach to money, our desire for affection and uh, appreciation. What if the answer to all these yearnings is Jesus is enough? The message itself sounds pretty simple. It must be relatively straightforward to put that into practice, right? Well, actually, no, I don't think it is. You see, we have a tendency to think that we need to find something more, that somehow we need to graduate beyond the basics, add something else. We're conditioned, you know, as we grow up, that we should be growing from simple truths that we learn in nursery and then what a preschool, nursery, infants, juniors, senior school, and maybe beyond that. And we can apply that if we're not careful to our journey of faith. We can feel that we must be ready for something more advanced than this simple truth that Jesus is enough. A friend of mine who, Simon Ponsonby, he's a vicar and a theologian, he shared this about, uh, this about his own struggle with this, and he said this, I tried to squeeze a bit more out of God. I thought, I'm going to work harder to get a bit more of his love. I'll work for it. He said, Scripture says we've got to give 10% of our income. I'll give 12%. I meant to have a quiet time. I asked the milkman, what time do you start work? 
He said, four o'clock. I thought, you work for Unigate, I work for God. I'm getting up at quarter to four. And in my town, he said, I thought, I'm the first person up because I work for God. I spent five hours in a quiet time, snoring. But I did get up. I just wanted to be loved, to somehow move up the ranks. We can begin, if we're not careful, to think that the Jesus is enough class might be okay for someone who's recently started following Jesus, but I've been at this for a while now. I'm ready for the more advanced things of faith. There must be more to it than that. Have you ever found something so simple that it's a little unnerving? One of the examples that springs to mind in the last year or two, contactless, you get a card that has a little Wi-Fi signal on it, and apparently it's contactless. And so you just wave your card in the general direction of a machine, and somehow a digital bookkeeper somewhere goes and fetches money out of your account and transfers it somewhere else. And meanwhile, we end up kind of hovering. You know, first time I used it, I'm like, uh, is there nothing, no pin, there's nothing to sign, there's no paper being handed over here? Surely there's got to be more than this. I think this is similar to how the Colossian church felt as they sought to work out how to follow Jesus. They'd experienced something revolutionary, a whole new way of looking at the world. All the old methods and mechanisms of faith had been replaced by this new understanding. It all boiled down to accepting this truth, that Jesus is enough. And in the same way, it left them asking, is that it? Is there something more I need to do? Something more in order to be properly saved, in order to be loved by God. You know, you can't add anything to the love of God. It doesn't matter where your life is at tonight. You may be just feeling wretched about what you've been doing. God loves you. And there's nothing you can do to make him love you less. And there's nothing you can do to make him love you more. He passionately loves you. At what point do we graduate beyond that level one basic principle? Some of you will have heard of Karl Barth. He was a Swiss, a Swiss theologian, probably was reckoned to be the greatest theological mind of the entire last century. And he wrote tomes and tomes, numerous, numerous books uh, on the theology, study of the Bible. And in an interview, he was asked, could you sum up all that kind of, all the stuff you've studied and the gospel, what is the good news? And he said this, Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. And so Paul wrote to ensure the Colossian believers understand that adding extra teachings on top is just, it's not just uh, not necessary, it's actually dangerous because it detracts from, it undermines the central truth that Jesus is enough. So here's how Paul drives this point home. Let's continue where we left off in verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. Paul uses fairly strong descriptive language here, and the first word I notice here, verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive. He's saying all these Philosophies, they're a form of captivity. There were different kinds of philosophies prevalent back then in the culture that Paul was writing into. And he gives us more specifics about these, uh, about the ones he's referring to later in the chapter. 
Some were clearly to do with Judaism. He mentions customs like circumcision, food laws and drink laws and rules about festivals and how to uh, conform to holy days. Uh, but Paul also alludes to having certain kinds of spiritual experiences or special spiritual knowledge, which may have been part of Greek or Gnostic philosophies at the time. Their culture was a bit of a melting pot of differing ideas. You see, pluralism is not a new thing. The Colossians were facing that too, and so are we. We live together with so many different people with different ideas, and the philosophies of today look very different perhaps to most of those that Paul was addressing. There's a philosophy that says you need to have more and more stuff in your life. There's the celebrity culture. There are philosophies that say our worth is measured by success in our jobs or how much money we've got in the bank. There are worldviews that are based on being a good and moral person. There's the philosophy that absolute truth doesn't matter anymore. Whatever you feel is right for you is okay. In fact, the post-truth era uh, has made front page headlines during this year. That phrase, post-truth, has had a rise apparently of 2,000% against the previous year. It is something which we're observing in perhaps across the ocean in the political uh, tussle that preceded the election for president. I think Paul would say the same thing to us as he said to the Colossians. If you adopt these methods, any of these worldviews, if you insist on living under their rules and trying to earn your way through their values, it will take you away from the central truth that Jesus is enough, and it will actually place you in a kind of prison. It'll undermine the whole gospel message. You'll have lost your freedom. Paul wrote something similar to the church in Galatia, one of these other churches that he planted, and in that situation, it was Pharisees, Judaizers, trying to get the new Christians to obey all these rules of Judaism. And this is what Paul writes to them in Galatians 5.1. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. You have been freed from that. Don't go back to it. Don't let yourselves be burdened again by it. Albert Woodfox was released from prison in February of this year after being in prison for 43 years. He had become the longest standing solitary confinement prisoner in a, a country that may surprise you, in America, 43 years in solitary confinement. And he lived in a six foot by nine foot concrete cell, had no view of the sky, no human contact, and taking a walk meant pacing from one end of the cell back to the other again. And two months later, in the spring of this year, he found himself on a beach in Texas looking out over a cloudless sky, a horizon going right out across the ocean into the distance, and yet he confessed that he sometimes wished he was back in his prison cell. He said, I mean, it, it does that to you. 43 years in captivity, confined, he found it really difficult to find freedom and, uh, and walk in that. Paul is encouraging the Colossians, don't go back. You've been set free. Jesus has given you everything you need, so don't place yourself under other laws, under other rules now. Don't give up the freedom that you now possess. Don't be caught by what these people are saying. You recognize that Jesus gave you freedom then. He still gives you freedom 
now. And I want to encourage you today in the same way. If you have chosen to follow Jesus, if you've been saved and set free, don't go back. Don't get distracted by the notion that your worth is found in what you earn or what you have or how you look or how others see you, how moral you are, even how far you've come. Your worth is found in Christ, in Jesus Christ and Christ alone. He, he is the only one that gives freedom. He's the only one that can set you right before God. All the other systems just don't deliver. And then Paul says here that they are hollow. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy. These ideas, these worldviews were distracting the church, but ultimately they had no substance. There was nothing to them. They were hollow. In today's culture, one of the parallels with this is the genre of literature known as self-help books. I'm sure you know what I mean. Maybe some of you have read some of them, but you go to a book shop and it seems the aisle is getting longer and longer, how to help yourself. And some books promise to convey foundational principles that if embraced will transform your life. And over the last century, many self-help books have topped the best-selling list. So going back as early as 1910, The Science of Getting Rich, How to Win Friends and Influence People, 1937, The Seven Spiritual Laws of Success. And these books keep on coming. There'll be another one next year and the year after. And in recent years, we've started to engage with this form of self-help literature in bite-sized chunks through posts on Facebook and blogs. And these ideas, they may well contain some valid observations and advice for certain times and situations. But there is a reason that the Bible has been the top seller in the world throughout this period and, in fact, through its whole history. And that is because, unlike these philosophies, which are hollow in comparison, the Bible and the person about which it writes is full and complete. Now, in Colossae, they weren't writing self-help manuals. They were being sold these ideas and philosophies. They were in danger of believing them that to truly follow Jesus, to, to truly win his approval, you must do this or that. But Paul is saying, look, you know these ideas are just hollow and empty. Doing stuff like obeying a bunch of laws might make you feel better for a while, but ultimately it will not get you right with God. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, Jesus is recorded as saying this, I tell you that unless your righteousness, that's how good you are, how holy you are, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, and they just were fastidious about trying to do it all right, unless your righteousness surpasses them, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Oops, that sounds like terrible news, doesn't it? There's no way we're going to be as good as the Pharisees or exceed that. How on earth are we going to be saved? Jesus is the only one who is righteous enough to meet God's standard. And if you have committed your life to him, you have his righteousness. You have right standing before God without having to jump through all these hoops. Your sin was put onto Jesus on the cross. And a divine swap happened in that moment. Your, his righteousness was put on you. And so God, if you have committed your life to Jesus, already sees you as holy. 
Of course, we are to clear, steer clear of sin. We are to reflect God's nature. Chapter 3 unpacks that. You could read that about being compassionate and kind and humble, gentle, patient, and forgiving. We're supposed to grow in those things, but we're not trying to add to what Jesus has done by submitting to a load of rules that God never intended followers of Jesus to comply with. The only thing that can make us righteous is Jesus and his work on the cross. The way in is the way on. You recognize that Jesus made you right with God then, he still makes you right with God now. And as if these two words, captive and hollow, weren't enough to slam these philosophies, Paul adds another adjective, deceptive. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition. Deceptive philosophy. Paul is telling them this new idea may sound good, but it's actually deceptive. It's not true. There are a lot of uh, philosophies out there that might be good. You can read any pop psychology book, finds dozens of ideas that sound good, but how can we tell what is true and really worth resting our weight on and what isn't? Paul's already given the Colossian believers the answer to that question. Colossians 2 here, we're just going down to verse 2. My goal, he said, is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Paul is saying the full riches of complete understanding will lead us to know the one person we need to know, Jesus. Hidden in him, are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Jesus himself is truth. Truth is not a load of statements to believe. Truth is a person. Jesus said this of himself in John 14:6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Paul encourages the Colossians, don't be caught by the lie these people are peddling. You recognize Jesus was the truth then, he is still the truth now. And the warning that Paul gave this church in Colossae is also a valid warning for us today, that Jesus is enough, and that any philosophy, any legalistic mindset, uh, any approach that we try to add, any religious stuff we do on top of that is hollow, it's deceptive, and it actually has the potential to hold us captive. For some of you today, you've tried living in light of different ideals and philosophies. You've, maybe you've lived for success. Perhaps you've chased position or influence. Perhaps you've pursued the perfect romantic relationship in the hope that that will solve everything else. And yet you're still left looking for something that feels enough. Maybe the reason you're still searching is because you haven't handed it all over to Jesus, or you've never placed your complete trust in him to be enough. And maybe for some of you, today is the day to do that. And I want to give you the opportunity to respond at the end of this message. Now, I want to spend the next few minutes drawing from this letter three reasons why Jesus is enough for me and you. Let's just read 
continuing in verse 9, for in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Jesus is enough because Jesus is God. And Paul takes us back to the section in chapter 1 that we looked at in part 2 of the series. And just to recap that for those of you who weren't here, that section there, verses 15 to 20 of chapter 1, gives us a glimpse of what, a number of glimpses, do you remember, with the Rakots Bridge, what Jesus is like. And one of them is, Jesus is God. If we want to know what God is like, we see it in Jesus. To see Jesus is to see God. Jesus represents God perfectly. In a verse which is nearly identical to the one we just read, it says this, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Everything that made up God, his fullness, was found in Jesus. Jesus is God. Everything that can be attributed to God, all of his character, all of his nature, can be attributed to Jesus too. So that being the case, why is is Jesus enough for us? Well, let's read verse 9 along with verse 10. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. Jesus is enough because we are in him in Christ Jesus. That's the status, that's the identity of everyone who is a follower of Jesus. And now we've returned to the topic in part three of the series. Our identity as believers is that we are in Him. Our status is in Him. When God looks at us, He sees us as being in Jesus. And it means that what is attributed to Jesus is now also attributed to us. What He has we have. Who he is, we are. We don't have a righteousness of our own, but we have it through faith in Jesus. And what's more, he is enough because, in verse 10, we have been brought to fullness. Brought to fullness is an interesting phrase. It's steeped, full of meaning. Uh, Other translations use the phrase, you are made full or you have been made complete. That word fullness, it's the same word that's used in the previous phrase, all the fullness of the deity in Jesus in bodily form. And the picture here is that God wants to flood the lives of his followers with his joy, his love, his peace, his power, and richness, and fill us to completion. And this speaks to the yearning at the core of every human being, a deep desire to be made whole, to be made complete. And we try and fill that void, human beings do, with just everything under the sun. It doesn't work. We hope that like the character in Jerry Maguire, that film, perhaps we might find the perfect partner and be able to say, you complete me. Human beings are on a search, whether it's filled with stuff or money or success or reputation or whatever it happens to be, trying to become complete, but it doesn't work. The incredible truth is that every follower of Jesus receives this fullness of God in the way in. When we come to Jesus the very first time and accept his offer of a relationship with him, whatever the state of our heart, whatever the state of our lives, we're brought to fullness and made complete in him. Now, it's clear from other parts of this letter to the Colossians, there's a process, of course, of growing to be more like Jesus. We need to come clean when we mess up. But somehow, by faith, God sees us as already complete. 
in Jesus. We don't need to add anything to our experience. We don't need to try and look better than we are on the outside. For those of us that are following Jesus but struggle uh, with feeling like we are still lacking something, I want to pick up some of the phrases that we find in this letter as we draw this series to a close. Listen to what God has done to bring about relationship with you. This is the fullness that he has brought us into. So chapter 1, verse 12, the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his people in the kingdom of light. Verse 13, he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us in the kingdom of the Son he loves. Verse 22, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. What about 2.13? When you were dead in your sins, God made you alive with Christ. Also, verse 13, he forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness which stood against us. It's time to stop worrying about what we've done or worrying about we're missing something and start believing that what God has done in Jesus is enough for us. When we accept it, when we believe it, when we, we will find ourselves living in a way that pleases God, not to make God love us, but because we know He already does. And our obedience will overflow from a life of gratitude that He has done it all, that Jesus is enough for us. As I close, I just want to speak specifically to those of you who are on a journey towards Jesus, but are yet to make that commitment. And in a moment, I'm going to give you the opportunity to respond, if you want to, by praying a prayer of commitment. If you're sitting here today and you're saying, you know what, I don't believe I have that kind of connection with Jesus that makes me complete, but I want that, then I believe Jesus is giving you an invitation today. He wants to fill your life. He wants to make you complete in Him. He wants to end the search that you've been on for something that feels enough. He is enough for you. He wants you to give him your heart, hand your life over to him, whatever state it's in, so that he can give you his life. If you're ready to accept that invitation, I'm going to pray a prayer now. And I'd encourage you to say it with me. If this is where you're at tonight, you're ready. And just say it, repeat it in your heart, line by line. God can hear you if this is what you want to pray. It's a prayer of commitment. Jesus, I thank you that you want a relationship with me. I recognize that you are the only one who can make me right with God. You took my sin on yourself on the cross. And as I put my trust in you, my slate is wiped clean. I want you to make me whole. I hand over to you all the other things that I've been living for that don't satisfy. Please come and fill my life and help me from this day forward to follow you. Amen.